Welcome to the Future Cued Podcast. I'm Australian food futurist Tony Hunter, and in these podcasts I talk to leading industry figures about how new food technologies will influence the future of food. Hi everyone, it's Tony Hunter here, Futurist for Food. I'm in San Francisco right now, and I'm with Alec Lee from Endless West. How are you, Alec? Great, how are you doing? Good, good. Well, Alec, tell us a bit about Endless West and uh, why you chose to try and work on whiskey as a product. So Endless West is the maker of the world's first molecular wines and spirits. And we do that without any grapes or fermentation or barrels or or aging. Um, And we chose to launch with a whiskey first for all kinds of reasons. We, We actually started off working on wines. But in retrospect, for various regulatory reasons and, and product development reasons, whiskey made a lot of sense for us to, to do first. So what are you actually classified as in the, in the U.S.? So you're a spirit whiskey. So we as a company are classified as a distilled spirits manufacturer. And that's actually the first reason why wine was sort of off the table to begin with. Um, Distilled spirits manufacturers are not wineries, and those have to remain independent. So Glyph, which is our very first whiskey, is classified as a spirit whiskey with natural flavors. But with, with that, it's not a requirement that all of our products be within that category. This one, with its formulation, happened to make the most sense in that category. Okay, that's great. I mean, I, I love the term molecular whiskey and molecular spirits. I think that's a really great term because it's something that I think captures people's interest. Like molecular whiskey, what is that? And it talks to a bit to also the science because that's your process. It's a very hard science-based process, isn't it, that you use? Yeah, there's a lot of science uh, in, in multiple steps, particularly in the beginning and the very end when we're mixing everything back together again. Um, I, for one, would love there to be a federal and state classification for molecular wine and spirits, but unfortunately that doesn't exist, so we still sort of still have to bend the, bend the nomenclature a bit to, to fit ourselves in. So again, so with your process, what you've done is, I understand it, is if you've taken whiskey and you've basically deconstructed it down to what are the key uh, molecular components of that product and then look for other sources of them other than by aging and by contact with wood and things like that. Exactly. So I think a great example of the search for such a molecule would be if you smell sort of like a green herbaceous, almost a green pepper note on a Sauvignon Blanc. A lot of that is due to compounds called methoxypyrazines. And those methoxypyrazines smell green herbaceous like green peppers because they are found in green peppers. Um, It's not a trick to the brain. It is literally the same molecule. And so the the insight here is simply that those molecules you find in whiskey or in wine or really any other food or beverage can be found elsewhere in nature too. They're not necessarily unique to that specific product. They just have a unique combination of all these sort of standard base set of molecules. So we can then go to something like green pepper, which makes a lot more methoxypyrazine than a Sauvignon Blanc would, extract that molecule pure, 
and for sort of going down the line for each of those molecules, find the very efficient source where we can get a pure molecule out and then mix it back together in the right proportions. Because what it comes down to, it's not so much the molecular composition of a product that makes it a whiskey. It really comes down to the process it goes through, and that's what people associate with whiskey is this process, which can be a very long process, as we were talking about before we started product development in whiskey, is I've just made a change, Alec. And you say, when can we taste it? I say, 12 years and we'll know whether it worked. And then only another 12 till it comes out. So, I mean, that's something that the, you guys can, um, can do outside of that, if you like, provenance side, is come up with a product that has a lot of the, the attributes people are looking for with a unique production process that's very rapid in its ability to to make changes and to improve. Exactly. So where iterative tests might take decades for real fundamental you know, step changes in traditional whiskey making, we can make iterative changes daily. And so you know we went basically from nothing to a finished product in the span of 18 months, but even that's pretty long for the process. A lot of that was also process development. So in theory, it can be done in the span of weeks from start to finish. Right. I mean, there are other companies in this space who are looking to try and make product without using the traditional methods or accelerating through traditional methods. What's the difference between what you're doing and what they're doing? Is it the fact that you're going back to actually ground zero, whereas these guys are just trying to modify the existing processes? I think that's a, that's a reasonable way to describe it. Ground zero presupposes that you're starting with nothing. You're really starting with a true blank slate. And then when you build it back up molecule by molecule, not only do you get the advantages of time and cost, but you also get control. And control is a really interesting one because if you start with sort of intermediate uh, raw materials, then you don't really have total control over the final product. You're just kind of manipulating the process by which those raw materials interact. So where an accelerated aging technology for like a whiskey, let's say, can really only yield you a whiskey, and it'll be various stages of quality, and it, you know different, you might get different uh, percep uh, perceptions of age, where we're not limited by those same those same starting materials. We are therefore not limited by with the end product. So our process can start with the same raw ingredients and end up with either a whiskey or a wine or even a non-alcoholic beverage. When you analyze something like whiskey, there must be hundreds if not thousands of compounds in there. Where do you draw the line as to how many of them you're going to try and duplicate and source and then combine? Yeah, that's a really interesting question that I think is largely solved empirically. There isn't really a good theoretical way to computationally derive what's relevant and what's not. And part of the problem is that the data that we get, it's not prescriptive. So the computers don't know when they see a particular molecule at a particular concentration, whether or not the human palate can, can detect that at that concentration, because every molecule is, is perceived differently. And so we actually have to build this data set, not only computationally, but then also manually. 
and look at each of these molecules independently to understand their impact on the whole. So building the data set up front is a lot of work, but once you've already sort of built this out, then you have the ability to do a lot of very rapid iteration. So do you employ sensory specialists, you know, the old one, the grass chromatograph, and the guy smells that one as it comes out, and then you mark that one off, or what process do you go through to say, ah, oh, that peak there, that's such and such, and we can really smell that? Yeah, it looks a lot like that. I mean, a person has to be there as it's being tested, but that's really only for a, a very specific type of test. There is more that can be done without those two having to be directly linked. Um, really, once we see a molecule, we just need to get it pure, and then we can analyze it. It's not even as simple as just saying, this molecule is here, therefore it does this. Because a lot of these molecules have synergistic effects that are not predictable, and, and that can really only be determined empirically. Yeah. As you say, that's synergistic. Um, interaction between the molecules, you can put them in individual vials, they spell one way each, combine them and they're another entirely. So that really gives a huge amount of you know, combinations and permutations you can take with all these raw materials. When you've isolated what you consider to be the critical components, how many sources of those um, components have you looked at? Hundreds? Thousands? Well, for any given component, there are anywhere from one to many sources. Obviously, I can't divulge where we look for them or how we find them, but for the most part, we don't have to do those extractions ourselves. You know, the perhaps beauty of what we're doing is that everything that we use is already found in whiskey or other spirits or wine, and therefore it's already food. And so, you know, the only reason why this works at all is because, as I said before, those molecules aren't unique to whiskey or wine or whatever. They can be found elsewhere in nature, too. And therefore, they have other food applications. So we don't necessarily have to go out into nature and find some obscure plant and source those molecules ourselves. We can usually find them from other manufacturers. That's not true with all the molecules, unfortunately. There are certain things that we do have to extract ourselves because there aren't commercial sources for them. But, you know, it's, it's a combination of all those things. They're, they're out there. And, you know, sometimes it's not as simple as, I found this plant, and it smells like a green pepper. Let me extract the molecule. Um, for example, vanilla doesn't just come from vanilla orchids, right? You can get it from chemical modification of wood, but you can also engineer various fungi and yeasts to make that molecule. And so there's a decent amount of engineering that happens to make some of these molecules as well as efficiently as possible. As you say, you know, people think vanilla comes from vanilla beans. Most of it doesn't, except the very, very high-end vanilla pods. The rest of it is manufactured, often using genetic engineering on organisms to make the product. Exactly. So, you know, that's, that, that's, that's a fact of life, but um, people don't, don't realize that. So looking at all these things that you're doing here um, with, with the Glyph, what's the sustainability credentials or are there any sustainability advantages in manufacturing a product like uh, Glyph whiskey in this way? So if we're looking at something where we're comparing you know, a grain spirit against a different grain spirit, 
we're not necessarily seeing significant sustainability advantages on the raw material side. Um, obviously, with something like a barrel, you require a specific grade of wood. Um, you have a good deal of loss of that wood. Um, the statistic that I got from a lot of Japanese oak, for example, because it's, it's much more gnarled and very different than, you know, American white oak, is that only 40% of a tree gives you usable staves. So that aside, what you also have with something like traditional whiskey making is loss over time. So for like a 20-year age scotch, you'll lose roughly half of that product over time which means you need twice as much starting material, right? And then that doesn't factor in any of the extra cost or environmental impact of having to warehouse it and, and sort of maintain it um, to consolidate those things over time. So just basic carbon emissions is one. Um, the impact of water usage is another. With grain, it's not as big of an issue, but when we start talking about wine, it becomes much bigger of a, of a delta between how we make it um, so, for example, traditional wine requires somewhere between 300 and 1,000 liters of water per liter of wine. Our process, we think it's somewhere around 13 liters of water per, per liter of wine. So even if we're off by, you know, a factor of a few, we're still way off by like an order of magnitude um, compared to the traditional process. But, you know, I think that sustainability is often perceived as, oh, it's just the carbon, it's just the water. I think there's also an interesting conversation to be had about the land use and the opportunity cost of having to grow other crops elsewhere and then having to ship them in, but then also pesticide use. So most recent statistic that we have out of France from 2013 was that something like 3% of their agricultural land is dedicated to grapes for winemaking, but 20% of their pesticide use is dedicated to grapes for, for winemaking. And so that ends up in the environment. Um, it also ends up in the wine. And, and these are things that are generally not what consumers want out of, out of their products. So, you know, sustainability looks like a lot of different things. Yeah, and we were talking too at one stage about um, transport, as, a, as you pointed out. If you want French wine, it has to be transported from France. Whereas for something like Glyph, if we use local grain spirit, which is obviously the major component, I could make exactly the same product in Brisbane as you're making in San Francisco, as someone makes in London. Um, you, as long as we use the same components, you guys take the Coca-Cola approach, you put this much of A and this much of B and nobody knows what's in it, but mix it with the grain spirit. So there would be some advantages there in localising the manufacture of these products because there's so much emphasis these days on buying local food to keep transport costs and uh, CO2 emissions and so on down, that I think that's also probably quite a significant contribution that if you like in molecular spirit manufacture. Absolutely. And then down the line to, to be able to apply those things, you know, even outside of alcohol, if you can really make a much more efficient version locally, it saves you a lot of time, it saves you a lot of money, and it saves a lot of uh, environmental impact. Yeah, for sure. And one thing that's fascinating me is, why did you call it glyph? I've looked up the word glyph, and I sort of had an idea what it was, and it's a symbol, it means something, and I had a look at the label, and I wasn't quite sure what the glyph was on the label besides the word glyph. So, 
if I frame it as glyphs and pluralize that, um, then I would refer you to the different icons that you find in, in the lockup around the word glyph. Um, and, and that, that I think starts to allude to, to what we're going for. We chose the name glyph particularly for the story that is told by the combination of the molecules that are there. And so if we think of each molecule as its own, having its own unique meaning or contribution to the flavor and the aroma as a symbol, right, as, as a, a letter or, or a glyph, that product, you know, this, this beverage that we've created is a combination of these symbols, just like a story is a combination of letters. And in the right arrangement and the right proportions, you get meaning. And that, that really is the, the motivation for the name. I like it. As soon as you put it that way, it's, it's obvious. You say glyphs, they mean something. You put them together, they tell a story like words. Put in the right order, they mean something. If you don't combine them in the right way, they can be absolutely nonsensical. So they glyph. I like it. I like it. Now, with a lot of products I see, future food products coming out, the most recent one, of course, is the Impossible Burger version 2. Do you see yourself continuing to improve Glyph and bring out you know, Glyph 2.0? Or how do you see progress in the, in the product? Well, so Glyph originated from many different versions, if you will. The specific one that you see on the bottle, so just beneath Glyph, it says 85H in red. And that is sort of like our internal designation for this version of Glyph. Right. So Glyph for us, we think will just end up being the whiskey line. And after 85H, it becomes other things. But that's really up to sort of the marketing team. The, the, the R&D team doesn't really care what we call it as long as we're successful in in telling that story. You don't think then that you will, you know, so you read it to the marketing people to say, well, look, you've made some improvement. I think we're going to call it Glyph 2.0 or we're going to call it some other name in the whole thing because I suppose to me that's part of the advantage of these ones where you are using novel methods to make products is you have that ability to continuously improve the science and technology. And that was why I was interested in whether Glyph will stay exactly that formulation for the next 10, 20 years or whether you will release new and improved versions because, I mean, as we talked about, the, the whiskey, traditional whiskey guys have to wait about 20-odd years to bring out their new and improved and they probably don't even tell you what they've done. But, you know, whether there's any advantage of the 2.0, I, I don't know. Maybe we have to defer to the marketing team in the years to come. Well, I think what's really interesting is that in wine and spirits, connoisseurs love change. They like the diversity of the different products that are out there. They like to see those innovations, and they certainly are limited by the traditional mechanisms by which you make new versions of something. There's no reason why we wouldn't continue to develop the formulation that is glyph. We probably just won't call it 85H. But we can continue to make it for as long as people want it. Yep, sounds fair enough to me. Are you looking uh, through Endless West eventually creating, if you like that, a whole new molecular spirit market segment with other spirits? 
Well, what makes me really happy is that it's kind of already happened. We've we've gotten a few accounts that carry Glyph now, a couple of retail accounts that have already just changed their menus so that there's a category of molecular molecular spirits, um, which was we did not ask for, but they figured that that was the most compelling way to you know differentiate the thing that we made versus the other categories that are out there. You know, it's not a scotch, it's not a bourbon, it's not a Tennessee whiskey, it's not a Japanese whiskey. What is it? So I would love to see that category grow over time and perhaps for there to be other players there too. I would hope that there would still be further differentiation beyond simply molecular spirits, right? Um, but yeah, I would love to see see that category turn into something that is meaningful for, for more consumers. I think it's great there. To me, molecular spirits just has that something about it that says, molecular spirits, it makes you want to know what it is. And I think the, what the good thing we have here is it's on the market, therefore people can become familiar with it because with most of these new products, particularly where it's a whole new concept like this molecular spirit concept, you have to have familiarity, cost and taste. If you get those three right, then you've got an ongoing market. And by getting it onto the marketplace, you're getting that first one of familiarity. People walk by and see it on the shelf and see it on the shelf and see it on the shelf. One day they're going to go, I'll just try some of that. You know, it's been around for a while and the taste is there. It is from everything that I've uh, read and listened to. Everybody says, wow, it is different. No one's, I haven't heard anyone saying, I hate it, it's bad. It's been, that is different. I don't quite know what to make of that. And I think by having its own category, that's great. It doesn't have to be the same. You don't want people to go, I can't tell the difference from Johnny Walker, seven-year-old or 10-year-old with this. You want to say, that's a spirit. It's a bit like whiskey. It tastes really good. Wow, I think I'll get more of that when I run out. And that's what you're after. Exactly. We've we found it's, it's actually pretty dangerous for us to present it as, oh, it's inspired by blank scotch bourbon japanese whiskey it doesn't matter what we put in front of in that blank when we say that and people try it their response is well it's not that and people people's reaction to it's not the thing i expected it to be is usually negative like oh it doesn't taste like a, a scotch like you said it was so therefore there's something wrong with it right and so we've we've taken away that that framework because it really is inspired by so many different things that that prompting doesn't help people put it into put it into a bucket. You know, putting it into a bucket is just not helpful in the first place. So yeah, absolutely. The the new categorization will help people, I think, really relate to it as its own unique thing. Do you happen to know where? molecular spirit first came from? Was it something that you guys used or that some journalists used somewhere? I'm just intrigued as to where the concept came from. Well, journalists in the early days loved to just use the word synthetic because it was, it was clickbaity. And we had to do a lot of work to understand what is the right word that is going to be sufficiently descriptive and, and therefore transparent, but also succinct enough to communicate what, what it is that we're doing. And even the term molecular, which we now like, 
was was pretty controversial on the team in the very early days, right? Before we had tested it, before we had really understood how people react to it, we were worried that people would react to it the same way that they react to synthetic, which thankfully they don't. I mean, it's a separate conversation to get into synthetic and why it's fundamentally a misnomer based on people's understanding of that word, uh, because everything does still come from nature, right? And and so we we needed something not just for the marketing behind the fact that synthetic has a negative connotation, but just because also synthetic is literally the wrong word for it. So yeah, you know, it took a lot of work for us to get there for sure. Yeah, I, I think it's a great outcome. What what I would love to see is it turn up on an episode of something like Star Trek or that new one, The Orville, or something like that. I can just see the captain of The Orville sitting down with some glyph with his comrades at the bar there on The Orville and knocking that one back. I think that would be awesome. Send the producers a couple of cases and see if they'll use it on The Orville. <laughs> I would love that. I'd absolutely love that. I mean, Star Trek was a big personal inspiration for me, right? Like, I, I would love to have the Star Trek replicator food. Realistically, it's not gonna happen in my lifetime, maybe for my great-grandchildren, but what was interesting about being able to work on on this project was we need to understand those inks that are gonna be used to print those foods in the future. And and without that deep understanding, we, we could never get to that endpoint. So in some ways, I think that this is sort of pushing us in that direction. Yeah, now it's not quite replicated technology, but you know when you take into account with the 3D printing and everything else, um, it really is a fascinating time. And the last thing I suppose, we've probably covered off on this really, I mean there are over 500 whiskey brands out there, and I think we've really probably answered that one, is why are, what's different is you're not trying to compete against those 500 brands, you're saying they are what they are, I'm not trying to imitate, I'm making something complementary, another category, if you like, that adds on the end that gives a wider range of experience for the consumer. As you pointed out before, consumers want new experience. New products come out all the time. This is a new product extension, if you like, of this range of, of spirits. And um, I think that's that's great. So this is only released, what, late last year you released Cliff? Yeah, basically beginning of December, we started getting it into accounts. And how widespread is it now? Just in San Francisco and New York, or you've spread further than that? Yeah, we're really only in the Bay Area and sort of the Brooklyn area. We're starting to get into Manhattan a little bit as well. We're hoping to launch a few more markets in the U.S. in you know the next quarter or two. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, we'll be in six markets that, that we can sort of control and, and, and launch right um, over the next year. But, you know, I think the international will, will come in due course as well. We're, we're trying to avoid the big blitz approach, you know, dump a ton of money into a national campaign and just kind of like hope for the best and try to get into the big chain grocery stores. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to the point about, you know, these 500 brands that are out there, they all really have their, you know, their unique story and the way of interacting with with consumers, and we have the same thing. You know, we we have a unique story. It's it's different, and we want to really do the launch right, where we can build something that's authentic to who we are, and find people with whom that story resonates. 
And so looking at where you are manufacturing-wise, how scalable are you at the moment? I mean, if one of the big chains came along and the board had tried it at the last board meeting and all got wildly drunk on glyph and decided they were going to dump it into all of their stores nationally, how quickly are you able to scale? Right now, our capacity is going to be fine for the next few years of sales projections. It's not as interesting to talk about what our scale is right now as it is to talk about the way in which and the speed with which we can add more capacity. Yeah, that's what I was really yeah. talking about. How scalable are you in terms of, say, if you had a sudden mad dash on Glyph, are you able to react fairly quickly in the market? Sure. So I think retailers typically expect a, a very rapid turnaround time. So we couldn't simply add more production capacity on demand. But we could real, realistically add production capacity within six months. That's external to the regulatory piece of it, mm. which just requires more time to get licensing. But generally speaking, about a year. And that's sort of that's really interesting to sort of see how you're going to going to progress and the, expand the marketplace. And so if you want to get into Australia, just send me a few cases. I'll go take around a few of the people, and we'll, I'm sure we can get some people interested down there. It sounds great. <laughs> As I think I said, I have a friend who's a whiskey absolute connoisseur. I listen to some of the stuff this guy says and goes, yeah, right. So I'm going to go and find a bottle of Glyph, and I'm going to take it back to him, and hopefully he can do a blind tasting with his friends in the Whiskey Society, and we'll, we'll see what we get. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. Well, that's great. Uh, look, thanks very much for all that absolutely fascinating product you have there. And I really wish you guys all the best. I'm, I'm betting you're going to be successful. So thanks very much for your time. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Alex. Bye. Thanks for listening to this podcast. And join me next time for more exciting insights into the future of food.